If you would like to buy your own copy of Spacecraft and the Stuff of Life, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Timothy Morton is Rita Shea Guffey Chair in English at Rice University in the US. They are the author of 16 books, including Being Ecological and Humankind, Solidarity with Non-Human People, as well as 200 essays in philosophy, ecology, literature, music, art, architecture, design and food. We begin this philosophical conversation with an overview of object-oriented ontology, the school of thought in which both spacecraft and the stuff of life are rooted. Tim discusses how they came to describe life through stuff, touching bananas, concealer, electric peanuts and the Battersea power station. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wayamin Cam. And I'm Rachel Moore. And today we're speaking to Timothy Morton, the author of The Stuff of Life and the Object Lessons book, Spacecraft. Welcome to the show. We are delighted to be speaking with you. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour and a pleasure to be here. Really excited to get into it. I really enjoyed both of these books. So, Let's start off with, obviously, not all of our listeners will be as familiar with what you base both of these books on. Um, So both Spacecraft and Stuff of Life have their central sort of thesis in a school of philosophical thought called Object-Oriented Ontology, or OOO. Could you explain what it is so we can just have a bit of context for that and how you came to work in the area of philosophy, especially as your academic career actually began in English? Well, that's a lot of stuff, and I'd really happy to talk about as much of it as I can, but may I warn you, first of all, that I'm like Donkey in Shrek, if you've ever seen the film Shrek. So, you know, Princess Fiona is is coming down the stairs with Shrek, and Donkey shows up, and Princess Fiona goes, he can talk? And Shrek goes, yeah, it's getting him to shut up, that's the problem. So I think <laughs> I might separate some of these things into bits, right? So I'm going to explain object-oriented ontology. I've got a whole shtick about what is a philosopher. I've got a whole shtick about why did I do this? But I'm just going to explain object-oriented ontology. Okay, so, so you know, science tells you what exists in the modern age, right? Like, it's kind of we trust science because it's based on consensus and that's based on trusting people and, like, carefully thinking about things and logic. So science will tell you what exists, right? But... Ontology tells you how those things exist. Yeah, do these things exist like they're just kind of flatlining, kind of there, constantly there all the time? Are they kind of flickering in and out? You know, what's the what's the deal with how things exist, right? So my job isn't to replace science or whatever, or even or for that matter, sociology or anthropology or anything. My job is just to be: if a football team exists, how does it exist? Yeah. And the way object-oriented ontology sees it is kind of the way science sees it, actually, which is that you can never see directly things in themselves. Yeah, you can only see the data, right? When you measure something, what you're getting there is measurements. You're not getting the thing, you're getting the thing measurements. And it's just basic, kind of not even quantum, but it's just basic, like, you know, I'm, when I'm, if, if, if I'm going to measure this cup, I'm going to get a couple of centimeters and whatever, but I'm not going to get the cup, Yeah. Let's take the example of a banana, because I tend to use bananas when I talk about this, because I am a banana. We did notice that. You know, and, and they show up in the stuff of life, yeah. So the thing about the banana is, so, so you measure the banana, you have banana measurement, right? 
then, you know, object-oriented ontology is saying that actually touching a thing or thinking about a thing or licking a thing or writing a poem about a thing is just as good or bad at not really getting at the thing than measuring it, right, According using a ruler or whatever or, or a thermometer, right? So, you know, you, you bite the banana, you have a banana bite. If you lick the banana, you have a banana lick, right? You write a poem about the banana, you have a banana poem. The banana, for some reason, learns to talk and goes on a chat show and gets interviewed, and then you have a banana interview. And then, you know, by this time, the banana's really messed up. You know, banana goes into therapy, banana's lying on the couch. He goes, tell me about yourself, banana. And the banana says, you know, I, I realized I was a banana when this object-oriented ontologist was using me as an example of a thing called object withdrawal in their philosophy and that was really messed up for me. Now, whenever I hear the words object or even banana, I just get totally triggered and I get really upset. And that's banana therapy talk. Yeah. At no point do you ever get the banana banana. Even the banana can't access the banana banana. Yeah. And so what does this mean? This means that we live in a wonderfully mysterious universe where everything has kind of secret hidden corners that you can't actually ever point to right? Like, imagine you're holding, in my country, USA, you're holding a dollar bill, you're trying to look at the other side of it, now you're looking at that side of it, so now you're not looking at the other side of it, now you're looking at the front, now that side's become the front. At no point are you ever going to see the, the back of that, because whenever you turn it over, you'll be looking at the front, right? So there's always some kind of hidden dimension that you can never see, and there's never, ever on an entity, I'm going to say entity, right, because object the, the word object technically kind of means slave, right? Like we've got this horrible master-slave template, especially in white Western philosophy, that maps onto subject and object. It maps onto masculine and feminine. It maps onto active and passive. It maps onto so many things, right? And this is a very, very, you know, obviously bad news idea. I'm hoping, sort of Pollyanna person, I'm hoping along with a couple of friends of mine, like Mackenzie Wark, but this template is about to snap, actually. And that one reason for all the fascism happening around the world is that somewhere at the back of everyone's head is this idea that that template is going to snap. And the thing is, when you don't have subject versus object, when you've just, when everything is quote unquote object, or maybe entity is a better word, right? Because it has a nasty taste to it, this word object. It means that whatever master slave is, is just a kind of imposition on what's actually the case which is that things cannot fundamentally ever be completely appropriated, exhausted, used up by something else, which is why slavery is, is horrible and violent, because it is not in accord with the way things actually are, with, with how things exist. And that's why I like object-oriented ontology, because it's really in line with the other things that I like to practice. For example, I like to practice Buddhism, and I'm very interested in practicing as much as I can anti-racism. And I'm very keen on, you know, working to struggle against the things that are happening in the USA right now. There's a, a huge a sort of explosion of transphobia and homophobia and misogyny going on on the right. Yeah. And so I think this view, it, it really helps me to, to know how to have the sort of the inner resources to, to do that struggle. Thanks, Tim. Yes, I, I think I was when I was reading about so I 
read the books and then I was reading a little bit more research into object-oriented ontology. And it did strike me that sort of the very basic thesis of this philosophy, obviously it's not exactly the same, but it, it, it strikes me as a little more similar to some of the philosophies of East Asian countries. So for example, you said Buddhism, I am a little more sympathetic to Taoism myself. And then obviously there's, it's also, uh, there's, I think some similarity perhaps to, I think the way that a lot of First Nations uh, people think about the world where basically it's not you know, like a lot of, I think, white Western like philosophies basically position humans as like at the top of the food chain. So, yeah, that's something that I think struck me a, bit, a lot about like uh, OOO. You know what? So OOO and deconstruction, I think, I think OOO came out of deconstruction. Yeah. Those two things are the pretty much the only white Western thought modes that I can tolerate at this point. You know, and so I, I deeply know what you're saying, actually. And it's sort of like, I feel like my job as a recovering white guy is to kind of get inside that HAL 9000 of that system, whatever you want to call it, and try to sort of, that's what deconstruction is. It's not about destroying it. It's about reorganizing it, bending it so that it can't hurt people anymore. I really appreciated the example of the banana in the introduction to the stuff of life. It was super helpful entry point into OOO. On that note, can I ask what motivated you to write the stuff of life? Where did the idea of a life told through stuff come from? So, you know, one of my favoritest editors of all time is my friend Federico Campagna. And he was working for Verso. And he wrote to me and said, would you like to publish a book with Verso? I said, yeah, obviously. So I went to meet him in London and he sat down. And the first thing he said, I'm not going to imitate his lovely Italian accent. He said, first of all, you need to I'm an anarchist. I thought, oh, good. So you've not got this dogmatic rigidity. We can get along. You know, what would you like to write about? Well, you know, we'd like you to do an ecological thing. How about if I turn the eco camera onto human beings? you know, and like talk about human beings. It's like a, one of these things I like to call a hyper object, right? Let's sort of describe what that is. Because the last time, again, white Western thought said we, as in everybody on earth, what they really meant was white guys, right? Like AKA, but not even white, but not even guys, but actually transparent people who underlie everything, right? Like my friend Denise Ferreira de Silva wrote this book called Towards a Global Idea of Race. And the whole idea of that is, the problem is this idea of a transparent being, aka the subject, right? sort of underlying everything. And so I'm trying to find a way to say all of us without making that noise. And that's what this book called Humankind was, right? In the middle of writing that, Federico gave me the best ever writing advice I've ever had, which was, imagine your book's been unearthed 20,000 years in the future, no one's going to read it, like understand any of the historical examples you give. So you need to use metaphors. And I went, oh my God, ping. And I, I really, really was influenced by that. And then he said, why don't you write a memoir using only so-called inanimate objects and yourself, right? And, you know, given that he'd given me this very poetic instruction about how I should write my stuff and given how I love to write sort of evocative stuff because i think people like me can only evoke things we can't really point at things for reasons given about five minutes ago so then i got inspired to write this book and it took me a while to figure out what it was called you know the first idea for what it was going to be called was electric peanuts which was a kind of after image phenomenon that i was called electric peanuts when i was a kid 
we all had to look at this really bright light and sort of stare at it, me and my cousins, you know, switch the lights off and you see these sort of after images. And that would be a good example, I thought, of a quote-unquote object. Because when you hear object, you think, you know, billiard ball. You know, like, could we at least imagine a liquid when we hear the word object? We've kind of gaslit ourselves into thinking that objects are these solid little bits of a machine. And we do not live in a machine universe, folks. We live in a quantum universe where things can be genuinely different and the future is genuinely possible and sort of accidentality and contingency and, and all that kind of thing can happen. We do not live in a machine. And so in that spirit, I started writing the book. Now then, you know, Federico, bless him, took it to Verso. And Verso said, this is too weird for us types. And so the lovely people of Bloomsbury decided that I wasn't too weird for them, that in fact, that I was just their kind of weird. And over time, actually, I've developed this lovely relationship with my editor, Liza Thompson, who has been nothing but very human about the interaction here. You know, and it's taken me a few years to write this book because this was a stretch for me because I'm used to writing books in the key of academia, which is in the key of authority, which is like a medieval thing to do with being right. You know, and I'm slowly gravitating towards thinking being interesting is better than being right, actually. And if you think about modern science, like when Einstein writes E equals MC squared, they're not thinking that they're totally right. They know that two weeks from now or 10 years from now or 200 years from now, that's going to be wrong or maybe a little bit less right, right? Like the beauty of our world is that Newton is still true, only less true. Like if you want a slingshot around the moon, you can still use Newton, right? If you want to travel close to the speed of light, you've got to use the Einstein, right? And so there are amounts of true. And so like actually being interesting is, funnily enough, it's kind of built into science rather than being kind of medievally right. And I'm going to torture you unless you agree with me. Yeah. And so in that spirit, I thought I'd write this book. And I sort of thought, well, I'll choose some things to think about, like these after images. And I also thought another interesting thing to talk about would be grief, you know, because grief is kind of an entity that is kind of you, but it's kind of like the withdrawn underworld part of you that you can't handle. It handles you. Yeah. You know, this is an older guy talking to people. I only figured out how to grieve like two, three years ago. And so I sort of thought, you know, this is a thing that takes you over and you can't get on top of it. It gets on you, right? So I wrote about that, yeah. And then I also wrote about the unconscious mind, which is the kind of the, the underworld quality of whatever that is. And then I'm pointing to my brain because your mind isn't really your brain, and, but I'm hugely on the side of the poor old brain these days, you know. In a way, when you meditate, it's sort of like you're just letting your brain be your brain. There's all this esoteric instruction in meditation about like, just, you know, reality is just these reflections in a crystal ball. Just allow the ball to be the ball for a minute. Just the relief of that, right? If you translate it into the ball is actually your brain, this kind of soggy kind of jelly thing, you know, and the, and the reflections are actually just like neuron patterns in there. It's saying the same thing, right? It's sort of almost like a lot of esoteric East Asian thought is, is actually to do with neuroscience, right? So, so you know, but also my teddy bear. You know, like I'm pointing in the direction of my bedroom where my teddy bear is actually there. I could go to sleep holding his foot. You know, I've had this teddy bear since I was one years old. Did you have, I was wondering, so you have mentioned some of the objects that you've written about in The Stuff of Life. Did you have certain criteria in mind or it sounds like what you chose to write about 
were fairly fluid, actually. Would that be correct? I did have a little bit criteria, but they, 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 they were kind of negative criteria. And a little bit, they were accidental. And I didn't realize that I had criteria until I started looking at the book more. I'm not going to go into too much my the actual human beings in my childhood, but let's just say that when I was asked to write a memoir based on things that were not human beings in my childhood, I thought, wow, this is probably the only way I can write a thing about my life that wouldn't completely and utterly trigger me and make me go into the fetal position. And actually, thanks to this book, thanks to you guys, thanks to this wonderful thing that you helped me to do, I'm now able to write that book. So funnily enough, right now, I'm writing a book with all the human beings in it, and it's a little bit different from the stuff of life. So I had that criterion, like anything that gets close to triggering me. I love this word trigger. I have a thing called complex PTSD. You know, it took me 25 years of therapy to figure that out, which shows you how much complex PTSD I have. And then I went into EMDR therapy, uh, ego state work. And I saw, I love this word trigger because what it means is when you're triggered, anything can make you go bang, right? Like just like a, a leaf falling on your head. Have you ever read Mr. Jelly, Roger Hargreaves? It's sort of like that. Like a leaf, an autumn leaf falls on Mr. Jelly's, the Mr. Man, right? The autumn leaf falls on Mr. Jelly's head. It's kind of that, right? And so as I wrote this book, I would actually get pretty upset. It's one reason why it took me so long to write it. And I would come close to these issues and then kind of have to pull away. But I also felt committed to writing about certain things, right? So one thing, of course, was writing about the unconscious, because I live in a country where talking to people is like talking to people in a dream. You can't persuade MAGA people. You can't persuade QAnon people. You have to blow their mind. You have to do twice as intense Bernays PR on those people to change their mind, right? And we have to change their mind. And then also, um, about three years ago, I came out to myself as non-binary and then to everybody else, right? And so I thought, really, it's really important to talk about that. You know, the fact that sometimes when I've gone into shops when I was little and department stores, whatever you want to call them, being a transatlantic person, I can't seem to shake my souvenir accent. This is a trouble because people sort of think I'm English, but I sort of am. But like sometimes I go into a shop and I do not see gender. I just go in there and I find something to wear. I'm like, wow, brilliant. And then afterwards, people are like, why are you wearing, what's going on here? And all these sort of misinterpretations about me. And when a very kind person started saying, you're non-binary, you're not, and suddenly went click, 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 click. Oh my God. And then I had one of those very Jungian dreams, which is like, pay attention to this dream. This is really important. And, you know, crying and just every, releasing everything. And like, so, so I realized I need to write about this, especially now, because we're in this awful anti-abortion culture, um, homophobic, transphobic culture, right? Right now, especially I live in Texas, right? Like I live in South Texas. And sometimes I remember that I live in South Texas and I reach for my Star Trek communicator to say, beam me up, Scotty. And then I remember that's just a sci-fi show and I can't. And so I have to, as a responsible person with some privilege, I have to go there, you know? And so I wrote a whole chapter about concealer because that's the one thing that I could think about that would get me to all these other places. I loved the concealer stick as an entry point into your self-discovery with gender, as well as how you'd go into shops and, and seek out what it was that you liked, not how the shop had labeled it for you, had prescribed it for the shopper. And I wanted to know, could you talk about what the concealer stick specifically means to you as an object? Oh, sure. It's interesting because, you know, some days you put makeup on and some days you don't. 
You know, I'm teaching a class now, it's a graduate class called Ecology and Philosophy, and it just so happens that everyone in the room is some kind of LGBTQ plus spectrum person, just randomly. And it's just amazing to be in the class, you know. It's very safe, you know. And sometimes we come in with some makeup, some of you come in without make whatever we're wearing, you know. It just kind of depends, right? And just kind of, what is it? One thing it is, it's like, never underestimate the antidepressant quality value of, of putting on makeup. You know, I do take antidepressants. I'm very out about being a depressed person. Yeah. So I know that's the thing. And if I'm feeling really anxious or upset or something, like it's something very incredibly grounding about it. And so it's not actually about disguising. I don't even know what it's really about. There's a whole kind of my inner Derrida, you know, like Jacques Derrida was the first person to be nice about my stuff. He read this book on written about Shelley and he said he was magnifique. He said, I was like, I can never not be your pal, you know. And so there's a whole thing that he says about the logic of the supplement. You know, when you put spice in food, are you bringing out the flavor or are you disguising the flavor? So it's hard to say, am I bringing something out or am I disguising it? And this is what I like about the word non-binary. It's really, it's sort of like the word non-dual in Buddhism. It's like, it's not two and it's not one. You know, am I bringing something out? Am I not that? It's the ambiguity that I like. And, and the more the makeup goes on and a little bit when it comes off, there's this feeling of ambiguity. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of ambiguity. And I think what the humanities have to offer us is the feeling of ambiguity, right? Like, so take QAnon, right? These people are the least ambiguous people ever because they think everything means something, right? Because they've been gaslit by computers that arrange everything into nice little grids that look like they mean something. So when you get a, like a bunch of Google images, all these Hollywood stars doing like winks and one eye things, for them, it's the Illuminati eye, you know, and when I teach my how to read a poem class, my first thing is the main point of this class is I'm going to teach you how to not read a poem, right? Default position. It's just a bunch of crap. It's just a bunch of nonsense, right? There's meaning and there's meaningfulness. Yeah. The point of life. I've just come out of major surgery. So I'm going to tell you the point because I had this huge, big Maslow peak experience after being sliced five times. And I highly recommend getting a surgeon to stab you in the stomach five times, you know. Um, don't try this at home. And sort of realizing even more than I previously that the point of life is not meaning, it's meaningfulness, right? It's the feeling of meaningful is better than the meaning. It's like they finally, does this mean something or not? right? The kind of scintillating quality, right? Somebody gave me this gold eyeshadow. Yeah. And you put it on, it's got this glittery quality and it's like scintillating. And it's, is it, is, is there something there? Is there something not there? I love this. And I think humanities in general is supposed to teach you to tolerate ambiguity, right? Am I a human being? Am I a white person? Am I a female male? All this stuff, right? Science is discovering increasing layers of ambiguity in everything, yeah, and that's also what humanities is doing. Only humanities is doing it outside of the lab, right? So I taught a class for scientists called What is a Fact? You know, well, a fact is an interpretation of data, but the trouble is interpretations are based on facts. And if you have a fact in your head called there's men and there's women and that's it, you're going to do actually quite bad science because that's actually not correct, right? And so like outside the lab where you see there's the men's loo and the women's loo, like that's, that's a quote unquote fact that's not based on like accurate interpretation of data, right? And so 
how to help people tolerate the ambiguity outside the lab. So into the lab, they can bring this stuff because really humanity fundamentally is science from the future. And so that's what I think when I put my concealer on. <laughs> I love the beautiful ambiguity, the concealer that both reveals and disguises who you are. I found a connection to that when you were talking about the Spider-Man costume or the cowboy costume and how there's such a fine line between machismo and drag because really it's all an interpretation and the small details. For real, there's an amazing anxiety where I live because people have to perform masculinity, right, normally, right, but then they have to overperform it, right? Like in California, people, I used to live in California for 10 years, and people dress very kind of like blank, you know, sort of blank, kind of, you know, imagine like Larry David sort of thing that he wears in Cobra Enthusiasm, you know. Here, it's like, that's not enough. i got to show you that I'm a guy, right? So I'm going to decorate my truck with all these little spikes, you know. I'm going to put the little spikes on the letters, the little cowboy letters, I'm going to put more decoration on and more and more, more and more bling, make a little, oh shit, I've turned into a feminine, right? You can never know when that's going to happen. And so there's this kind of Texan paranoia about that, right? And that explains an, a lot, a lot, a lot of Texan homophobia, but also a lot of the potential, right? Like if Texan people, if you started to hear progressive things being said in a Texan accent, I think the whole world would be like, okay, let's do it. I absolutely do not do makeup. So I, it's not that I can't like connect with it, but obviously I'm just like, that, that sounds about right with, with me. The points that did connect me with me were about obviously the performance of gender. It's, it's really interesting because I'm also queer. Um, and I've never really had extremely strong feelings about gender before. And I think as your chapter on concealer stick hinted at, there was a lot more time during the pandemic to just like sit and think about yourself. And so anecdotally, for me, there are a lot of people around me who are suddenly having questions about gender and sexuality. And I also started wearing a lot more clothes sort of like designed for men, as it were. I have air quotes up here. So for me, it was, it just, it became much more interesting to go clothes shopping in like the men's section and then just to go, well, this doesn't look like it's actually that gendered to me in my eyes, but to everyone else, obviously, perhaps, perhaps it did. No, awesome. And, you know, so, so there's this kind of play, right? And, you know, the, the thing about Alan Turing's essay, Computing Machinery and Artificial Intelligence, speaking as we are about chat GPT, because we haven't been, is that really, you know, his, his example is gender, right? Like before Judith Butler wrote Gender Trouble, Alan Turing wrote this essay in 1948, right? And like famous gay guy who got persecuted. And, so behind these two doors is a man and a woman, and one of them has to pretend to be a man, the other one has to pretend to be a woman. All you know about that is like bits of paper they put under the door based on answers to your questions that you're sliding under the door. And the, the point is, if that looks like it could be a woman, then kind of it is, you know. And his point about artificial intelligence is, you know, if it looks like it might as well be a person, it is a person. And so what's beautiful about that? He's made gender and person really cheap, right? So that actually, to pass the Turing test, all you have to do is be like, you're not a non-person. In other words, the possibility that you might not be male or female, or you might not be a person, like maybe I'm an android, I don't know, maybe there's like an invisible key at the back of my neck, 
but I can never check, right? Like maybe I'm just an after effect of some software, you know, this is the Cartesian problem that he tries to get rid of. It's like, God would never do that to me because he's a nice guy, you know, but the really clever bit in the second meditation is he's saying, but what if everything I'm doing is the effect of a, I'm a puppet of an all-powerful demon in our language, I'm just a chat GPT artifact, right? And so, but the point is, precisely because I don't know whether or not you or I are an android, that's how I can weirdly be nice to you. Like if I make a firm distinction between person and non-person, I'm getting into some territory where suddenly some humans become inhuman or subhuman, right? And non-human beings may be cute, but they'll never be as high up as me, as he said very nicely on the pyramid or the food chain there. And so um, I guess that, that's what I associate to, to what you're saying. The other chapter I particularly enjoyed was uh, your chapter on uh, Bassi Power Station and the place they had in your life, your childhood. Um, you do mention the start of gentrification with regard to the development of flats around there. And obviously, since then, the basically the development of Battersea Power Station has completed. It looks for listeners who have never been or never seen Battersea Power Station. They've recently completed development. And in my opinion, sorry, it looks terrible. It's a shopping center. They've converted this really potentially beautiful space into a shopping center. It's, it just looks like Stratford Westfield. Um, <laughs> but how, like, have you been to Bastia Power Station since it's been finished? Have you seen it at the very least? And how has the redevelopment, the completion of that gentrification of the area? There's now a tube station nearby. Has that changed how you think about it as an object? Uh, and if not, how so? You know, um, before we do that, can I just say a shout out to Stratford Westfield? Because my dad, lived in Maryland. And to get to Maryland, you had to go on the district line to Mile End. Then you had to go on the central line to Stratford. Then you had to go on the overground to Stratford East. Then you had to go on the overground to Maryland. So you traverse quite a lot, this shopping centre. I've been in there to buy train tickets to get, you know, to get to Scotland. I just, I know what you're talking about. And so suddenly my mind is all over there, you know. Um, I don't live that far away from Stratford Westfield. <laughs> so that's Bath why people, I... Let's say. It looks a lot like Stratford-Westfield now. But has it well, changed how you think about it as an object? Well, kind of no, because, you know, they, unquote, have kind of ru have ruined it. And I hate them for doing it. And they ruined it at the same moment, pretty much, as the BP ruined the Tate Gallery, which I love the Tate Gallery. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Tate Gallery all the time. Lonely teenager, like, isolated from, from their brothers, yeah? And so I would go to the Tate Gallery, and after you've been to an art gallery for a while, for me anyway, it was the smell that was the, it was the smell of the Tate, no matter what they put in there. But like, then BP changed it, and they put William Blake, like the old mad woman in the attic, right upstairs, like hidden away. And my Tate Gallery was gone, but mostly I could tell it was gone because the smell wasn't there. The, the Tate smell, which was this kind of brutalist, you know, dust after rain, quality of petrichor it's called it's one of my favorite smells yeah and i think battersea power station also associate with this brutalism and this petrichor because it's a it's a modernist thing people will know what it is if you've ever seen pink floyd's animals album you know when i talk to people who in california who've never been or never could go to britain i say i grew up on the cover of animals because i grew up about two miles to the southwest of that right on the edge of east southeast london 
a very strange, surreal place, you know, where very interesting, magical, realist art like drum and bass came out of, you know, and I'm a sort of beneficiary of everything that happened in from 1988 to 19, whenever that was. And I'm very lucky that when I went to the States, 1988 was happening over and over again until I got to, to California. So I was in 1988, folks, for about 10 years until about 1998. And, you know, one of the aspects of that actually was the, the punks, you know, punks taking MDMA. You know, I said to Björk, my friend Björk, I said, look, basically techno, you know, Acid House was punks taking on ecstasy, wasn't it? And she said, well, we had to think of something to do. The Orb, right, the Orb are like punk roadies and punk people from Killing Joke and stuff who formed this incredible sort of anarchistic sample group called The Orb. And their album cover called Adventures Beyond the Ultra World is, is a purple version of the cover of, of Animals, right? And in a way, it's, it's the same thing, but it isn't. It's this thing about the banana, right? Like the, the Pink Floyd, you know, Storm Thorgerson Battersea Power Station is the Pink Floyd Battersea Power Station. And then the Org one is the Org one. And then the one covered in flats is this horrible neoliberal one that nobody likes. And so it's all Battersea Power Station and never Battersea Power Station, Battersea Power Station, right? And so it's been kind of appropriated in different ways, but it can never, ever be. And that doesn't mean it can't be destroyed. You see, we have this idea that a thing is like a kind of lump of something underneath the appearances. And this is precisely the problem in white Western thought that we think of things as manipulable things that we can destroy and do whatever we want to because they're the same whatever they are underneath. And owning a thing means I have the right to destroy it fundamentally, right? And so this is the trouble. Just because something has a mysterious underworld quality doesn't mean you can't destroy it. And what happens when, when Tim dies, what's going to happen is Tim's going to disappear into the appearances of Tim. You know, memories of this, of this conversation, books that I wrote a pile of clothing, my last will and testament, which I actually wrote before I had this surgery because I was all freaked out. It's the same with Battersea Power Station, right? Like right now, Battersea Power Station has disappeared into the appearances. There's no difference anymore between Battersea Power Station, the thing, and the Battersea Power Station data, or at least it's been very, very occluded by those, by those flats. And so there's something very violent going on. If you would like to buy your own copy of Spacecraft or the Stuff of Life, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code, US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Timothy Morton is Rita Shea Guffey Chair in English at Rice University in the US. They are the author of 16 books, including Being Ecological and Humankind, Solidarity with Non-Human People, as well as 200 essays on philosophy, ecology, literature, music, art, architecture, design and food. In the second half of this conversation, Tim and our Bloomsbury Academic podcast host, Ming, get into a lively tete-a-tete on Star Wars versus Star Trek. Spoiler, both franchises are good and beloved by both parties, but their philosophical outlooks differ in important ways. We learn of Tim's connection to Sir Patrick Stewart, as well as their favourite spacecraft. Then we veer into the relationship between spacecraft and the human treatment of ecology, the environment and the individual. Take a listen. Let's talk about spacecraft. Yes, let's talk about spacecraft. We were wondering, Tim, is there any differentiation between how you approached the objects in the stuff of life versus how you approached the spacecraft in spacecraft, even though both of your books are grounded in OOO? For real. 
So I've been friends with Ian Boghost for ages and ages, and Ian Boghost created this series called Object Lessons with my other friend, Chris Sheberg, who used to be my PhD student. And this was a lovely idea. And Ian is a cartoonist and a video game designer, right? I was writing this book called Dark Ecology, and I asked him to do a little cartoon for that. And I'll explain why I wanted that, because I think Ian's sensibility is very interesting, but it's not very explicit. It's very implicit. Stuff of life was more explicit. Spacecraft is more implicit and evocative, right? So a typical phone ex text exchange with Ian, because we normally do text exchange a lot, will be talking about hamburgers and Muppets and cartoons are never talking directly about things, but talking like a little bit sideways to things. And I really love that about Ian. And, you know, this book, Dark Ecology, is all about loops, you know, and being this sort of noir film where you realize, oh, my God, I'm the enemy that I'm trying to get rid of. Ah, right. And so I was looking for Robert Roy, rightly, the self-swallowing snake, right, the universe serpent, right, and all the representations of this in the Middle Ages are really scary, you know. Jormungandr, the Norse one, you know, sort of like this nasty looking. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a cute Ouroboros? Because my point was, in a way, like, why can't silliness be a political affect? Like, what I really liked about the soup, if we can call it that, when my new friends Anna and Phoebe threw soup at this Van Gogh painting last September, they said they got uh -huh. it from my stuff. They were like, we got this from the Tim Morton Guide to how to be, a, how to be an activist. I said, oh, great. So I talked to them. And I said, this is the Sex Pistols moment of the environmental movement. Because finally... Sorry, yes, I think it's iconic, by the way. Just a right, short on. thing there. I thought it was right iconic. <laughs> on. So my dad was in Greenpeace, and my dad would, like, stop a whaling vessel. Great! I'm not knocking it. But then you've got to do it again. Then you've got to do it again. Then you've got to do it again. Because it's only got one degree of symbolic freedom. That action... Although they are 20-something caring, loving people and freaked-out people who get mic stuffed in their face and have to say what it means all the time, they included, geniusly, a ball bearing of meaninglessness that gave that action a multivalent quality similar to the you dirty, I don't know if I can say a bad word, ever, on the Bill Grundy show that the Sex Pistols did. Yeah, There was this weird, threatening, menacing grin quality to what the Sex Pistols did. And there was this menacing grin quality, right? And so kind of, he who controls the nonsense, or they who control the nonsense, or she who controls the nonsense, controls the world. You know, British imperialism, mid-19th century, Gilbert and Sullivan, I am the very model of a modern major general, don't worry, I'm getting round to spacecraft. Hydrogen bomb, 1960s, Dr. Seuss, nonsense stuff, right? The Beatles, right? They've used their fame wisely. Right? As soon as they got famous, they dressed up in nonsense versions of imperial costumes and did Sergeant Pepper. Then inside of that, they put on animal costumes and did I Am the Warus. And for me, I call the soup action yellow matter custard because it reminds me of what Lennon's doing in I Am the Warus, right? This amazing, like, threatening grin quality, like, whoever is in charge of the nonsense, aka the aesthetic dimension, is in charge, right? And so spacecraft is written from there. It's written from... I'm going to replace your MAGA hat with a Millennium Falcon. I'm going to see your MAGA hat and your stupid thing, because I know that you, MAGA guy, were getting stoned to Star Wars in 1977 and listening to Rush, and I'm talking to that person inside of that. And I'm going to give people the resources to go there, because 1977 is in the future. 
yeah, I think it's still the future, right? Jimmy Carter, solar panels, you know, lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tasting, motivating, good buzzing, cool talking, high walking, fast living, ever giving, cool fizzing, Pepsi. And I created this foundation called Cool America Foundation to try to get people to get a clue about global warming. And our logo is the Pepsi logo, and it says Cool America, but it's the 70s Pepsi logo, right? And cool, right? It's what is that? You know, ah. and white people beginning to think, like, maybe I can say cool, and that maybe it can mean something, you know. And the Muppet Show, right? And so I wanted Ian to, to, to draw a cute Uroboros, because I thought this would really change people's perception, and that silliness and nonsense, you know, and this kind of cute Uroboros thing would really work in this book. So he drew this perfect. Like imagine a Muppet, an Ouroboros on the Muppet show. Like instead of being from some medieval thing, it's like a Muppet version of that. And then we start talking, me and Ian, about the Millennium Falcon and me thinking, you know what, the central gravity of this film is the, is the Falcon, you know. And what I really wanted to do was a book called Millennium Falcon. But Chris and Ian said, why don't you just do a book called Spacecraft? Because that's better. Because imaginary things are also things, Right. You know, the fun fact about the Millennium Falcon is every shot of the Millennium Falcon, prove me wrong, has a triple O in it. There's like three little O-shaped panels in every single shot of the Millennium Falcon. But that's not why I chose it. I chose it because it's this thing where it's totally this radical democratic sort of thing. I'm sorry, Ronald Reagan tried to appropriate Star Wars because it wasn't that, because it wasn't that, right? Star Trek gives you like what to do you know, like, let's create a radically democratic world. But Star Wars gives you how to feel it, right? How do you feel it, right? Which is hyperspace. And then George Lucas gave us the hyperspace tunnel, which I think accidentally is exactly a Central African philosophy concept called Kalunga, another amazing entity object, right? Like, so this, this is the bridge between the worlds, right? This is Afrofuturism. This is like, how do you get from the past to the future? How do we figure out how to create a nicer world for humans and other life forms, right? In other words, how do we get to hyperspace, which is, so how do we get to the future from here? And in Afrofuturism, it's like hyperspace is everywhere. You just have to figure out how to get to it. And when you get to it, it's this tunnel, and it looks like the inside of a shell, and it's kind of a spiral shape, and it's made out of ocean, so it's blue. I'm sorry, MAGA people. Inside your head is a George Lucas hyperspace tunnel that's much more vivid and powerful than anything you ever heard from the previous president of the USA, whose name I hate to say. And so, like, first of all, the Millennium Falcon, second of all, the hyperspace tunnel, and third of all, the fact that Star Wars please don't get me too far onto this subject because I can now talk for two hours about how Star Wars is like an episode of The Muppet Show that doesn't realize that it's an episode of The Muppet Show. And that's the original sin of Star Wars, actually, is that as soon as Ray figures out, oh my God, I'm the very special guest star on The Muppet Show, that's the genuine end of the Star Wars, right? And you can map Star Wars characters onto Muppets. And so me and Ian have spent several years mapping Star Wars characters onto Muppets one of the most important ones is Yoda. Who's Yoda? Yoda is Miss Piggy. I just figured this out a few months ago, right? Both of those, first of all, Yoda is this fourth wall violator. As soon as you see this Muppet in Empire Strikes Back, you're like, oh my God, it's the Muppet show. It's not Star Wars, right? And also Yoda thinks they're the star of the show. Miss Piggy is the Muppetist Muppet because Miss Piggy is all about looking into the camera and breaking the fourth wall which is all about what the Muppet Show's about. And she also thinks she's the star of the show. And they're both voiced by Frank Oz, right? Rolf the Pianist, the confusion version of Rolf, as it were, the samsaric version, is Darth Vader, 
Yeah, they've both got this sort of snout. They've both got this sort of ears, you know. Imagine Darth Vader playing the piano. So this is how Ian and I talk. We're just talking like recipes for changing your mind as opposed to explicit. It's very implicit, right? And so this book, Spacecraft, the motivation was to try to give people like a at least a recipe for how to make some PR that would help people to figure out how are we going to decolonize philosophy, art, politics, right? Well, how are we going to do that, right? Actually, even white Western people have got all the stuff they need. Just watch an episode of Star Wars. Can I just say, I don't think I could watch like Star Wars again without thinking of like the Muppets, which is not something I thought I'd ever say. No, that's not something to celebrate. Victory! <laughs> I would actually like to ask, what is the difference? I was going to dispute your characterization of Star Trek, but I feel like that could go on for like three hours. So <laughs> let us move on to what is the difference between, this is something that you talked about a bit in the introduction. What's the difference between spaceships and spacecraft? Because it could have easily been called spaceships, but you very specifically wanted to call it spacecraft. Big disclaimer here. I'm a huge fan of Star Trek just as I am a huge fan of Rush, which is the Star Trek of rock. And I'm friends, very good friends with Captain... I can never remember the guy's name. I'm friends with Captain Picard's wife in reality. You know, so I've got thousands of years. And one of my favoriteest things that makes me cry is an episode of The Next Generation called The Game, where they all get addicted to this game. And then Data shows up, like this deus ex machina, to deprogram them. And it is just so moving. If you've ever come close to alcohol and drugs in a bad way, that episode is ridiculous. And then, of course, just quite a lot of things that Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk get up to, you know, and I'm a huge big fan of the first Star Trek movie. And I just love the whole thing. The whole Vija thing is just outrageous for me. So, you know, for, please forgive me for harshing on that's, Star Trek a little bit. That's fine. When I was reading it, I was like, I think I understand because like Star Wars is very mythological. So it's quite easy to start like reading a lot of stuff into mm. Star Wars where I feel like Star Trek is, there's a lot more sort of like the potential for like nitty gritty connections to like the contemporary time let's not get into star trek politics no you're absolutely right and i think two hours later no no yes but like spacecraft so the idea was again it's sort of like okay i'm going to say something rude about europe as an american speaking now as an american citizen can you tell from my accent so in a way you could say europe's got a lot of the right ideas about social policy i'm not talking about hungary and stuff i'm talking about you know like france germany right they've got like, nice ideas about that but they're not feeling it because they've still got this feudalism hangover right and european countries can call themselves great as long as you don't mention the slavery right like then it goes wrong we can't do that over here because we were the Xinjiang of Europe, right? We can never be great because of slavery. In fact, America isn't even a country yet because of 500 years of slavery and its legacy. Yeah, but we can be cool and cool is from the future because cool is making things out of broken stuff, right? Like think about all the so-called American things that actually are world things that people like that are made out of broken things. Broken shirt, t-shirt, broken denim, jeans, broken music, the blues, Black Lives Matter, all these things that are American exports that are like planet scale exports are really cool, you know. So spacecraft, the idea of spacecraft is it's like a feeling. It's a feel beyond and above the size and the shape and the whatever they do. I'm trying to evoke a feeling of feeling like your hyperspace astronaut, cosmonaut willing to go into the hyperspace tunnel kind of thing. Whereas for me, spaceship has got a kind of hierarchical quality that's been pre-established, you know, no matter whether it be, whereas a spacecraft is more like sort of a coracle of a hermit. You know, you've decided to kind of do this pilgrimage for no good reason to this island. 
and you just go into this little coracle and you float, you know. And so you've decided to like go into the monolith for no good reason. You just go into this little sphere and you sort of float into hyperspace there. And so it's not the empirical size of it. It's the way that it's non-hierarchical, that it doesn't have a hierarchy in a funny way. So in the book, of course, I very provocatively for Star Trek fans, and I am one, you know, there's a correlation between the Enterprise and the Death Star because both of them are kind of open plan offices. They've both got this very hierarchical structure where everybody knows where they are. I'm and, afraid you know, were right I, on that one, I, yes. I made a naughty video of the inside of the BBC. I did a show for the BBC and they said, you're not filming inside here, are you? Because you're not allowed to. And so, no, 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 I'm just uploading something to Instagram, you know, which was in fact a film of the inside of the BBC. And it was this very open plan office, very hierarchical thing. And it could have been the Death Star and anything like that. University of California, Dean's office was like that, right? And so the thing about spacecraft is that they always about like escaping from that hierarchical structure in the same way that you get a falcon to escape from the kind of horrible, nasty, like colonial part of the empire so continuing on with spacecraft and the narratives we impose on spacecraft and what we read from uh, spacecraft in media, what, if anything, can thinking about spacecraft tell us about ecology and how we inhibit and treat the planet? Gosh, one of the questions that people ask me all the time, which is a very legit question, actually, which is like, how do we do this? How do we do this? You know, and they're framing it in this religious way. How do we get from A to this B that's really different, right? And so my job, I feel, is to empower people. And so what I say basically is you have already started doing it. Even by asking that question, you've already started doing it. And you don't have to do this positiony, slightly virtue signally. But how can I possibly? I've been on a lot of Buddhist retreats where people, but how can I become a Buddha? And the teacher's like, but didn't you listen to what I was saying? I'm saying it's like really easy, like the you just have to do these things, you know. And we've already started, right? We started relating to the legacy of slavery in an honest and decent way. We started dismantling gender as an oppressive construct, right? We started, and all these things are how we relate to other life forms, because how we treat each other as human beings is how we treat other life forms, right? And the closest analogy to how to become pals with the dolphins is actually how to resolve the tensions between human beings in a way that don't collapse them into being exactly the same. So to me, the fact that the falcon is a radically democratic thing that anyone can fly, the point of the Jedi is... They, in a way, that's the other original sin of Star Wars, apart from not realizing that it's the Muppet Show. The Jedi created the Sith by creating this patriarchal hierarchy based on chastity. And how's that been working out for like thousands of years of whatever culture in the world, right? In Tibetan Buddhism, traditionally, nuns have to take 10,000 times more lifetimes to become enlightened than monks. What the F is that, right? And so if we're going to dismantle this stuff, how are we going to do it? And the point is like, you've already started. You've already started. You've got all the resources you need in the same way that Luke, unbeknownst to Luke, has got the Falcon and he's got the lightsaber and he's got Obi-Wan just ready to go. Actually, there's somebody ready to take him to the right place. And all the resources are already there to do the thing. We're not starting from zero. We've actually got all these tools inside us. And one of the ways that ideology gaslights us is making us feel like we don't have any hope, you know? And the whole point of that movie is could be broken down to Leia saying, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. There's still this one little bit of hope, even in that prequel where called Rogue One, where there's almost nothing. There's still that data about the Death Star. It's still that there's still something there, right? I fully believe that because the master-slave template isn't the boss of everything. 
And there's always something there. There's always something can leak out of that template, which is why you can have revolutions in Haiti and France and wherever for that matter, right? And that's why you can do it. Because actually people, all types of people, including starfish, I would argue, and probably including pencils, but you don't have to go that far, actually can leak out from underneath these things. A little bit like how in The Shining, Danny kind of like escapes from the maze where his dad is chasing with an axe by going sideways and walking out under the hedge. Yeah, I think that's a thing that life forms can do. I think that leads us nicely to the question of spacecraft and individualism. I think that's partly why, like, very briefly in Star Wars again, I think that's uh, part of why people loved Rogue One so much was because it was, they focused a lot on how the collective can latch on to hope and Besides the fact that obviously it was like, here is like the backstory behind how Leia gets that data. It kind of like gave you a glimpse into what it was actually like, like behind the revolution. And the revolution is about people, not just like one person. And incidentally, that's why Andor is good. Speaking of like individualism, the collective, you talk about the connections between spacecraft and individualism. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? For real. So we say these words, not you, but we, to say words like collective. I'm not having a go. Because I say these words, right? We need planet-scale collective action. We also need neighborhood-scale collective action. We also need whatever-scale collective action. And in, in many ways, individual is a stupid idea because Tim Morton is a collective of all kinds of bacteria and going back through time, various evolution artifacts like lungs and ears and brain and stuff from other life forms, right? And But it's how how is this collective? How, right? The spot that Marx and people missed, especially by excluding anarchism, because anarchism is like a dirty pejorative word invented by Marxists to be like communists that we don't like, right? And part of humankind was like, let's give Marxism a fecal transplant of a bit of anarchism in there that'll help to revivify it. Because anarchisms think a lot about what is collective, what does it mean, you know? And unfortunately, the going model of collective is drop all of your interests and everything now is defined by the collective. That's more important. That only goes, that only ends one place called fascism, right? When you look at the American Eagle and they're holding this bunch of sticks, that's the fascist, right? That's where you get the word fascism. The sticks aren't strong unless they're in this gang or bunch, right? And that's unfortunately the default. So I was in group psychoanalysis for seven years. I was in psychoanalysis for 25 years, you know which partly accounts for my strangely free associative motor mouthing. And then I was in group psychoanalysis, which is really scary because it's just seven people sitting in a room and that's it, right? And you sort of figure out what does it mean to be in a group? Is a group exclusive or what is group? Like when often in groups don't think about this, you get this scapegoat thing where you put all the bad stuff into one being in that group and then you eject that being Maybe the being's still in the group, but they've been hugely crushed and marginalized, right? Or literally imprisoned or executed or something like that, right? And often, perversely, I volunteer for this job in my career. You know, I'm like, I'll be the stupid person who says the wrong thing that everybody hates and magnetize that energy. But when you're a teacher, you need to deal with this scapegoat energy because it's really pervasive everywhere. And it's so tempting to go along with it because it's the easy fix. 
for things, right? Like the Donald Trump solution, just find the enemy and punish them. Everybody will feel great, right? It's Parsifal, right? It's like this, I'm a criminal moron who's going to save the fascist community by making it exclude the woundedness, the sense that, you know, the American chip on your shoulder of a white working class person and how are we going to get to feel hatred enough for other people so that we feel like we belong somewhere, right? So how to change that, right? And so how to think about groups, because fundamentally, unfortunately, I do agree with Freud here, if you don't work on them, at least human being groups are narcissists. They're very exclusive. They include people by excluding other people. And so we have to work on them because narcissism is an essential stage of human being development. It's just how you get to eat, right? How you get to absorb things, right? When you see a little baby doing that, it's cute. When you see a 40-year-old person doing that, it's called alien. You know, alien is like a whole collection of mouths that just wants to eat the world, you know? And so how do we get groups to not be narcissistic, right? And one of the fun things about the Falcon is that anyone can fly it, right? And no matter who's in on the flight deck, anyone else can be on it as well, right? And so the idea of collective there isn't a homogeneous bunch or gang of things. Like the little furry bird beings in my favorite Star Wars, which is The Last Jedi, is can fly the Falcon, right? Like anyone can fly, because all you have to do is push that lever, Unlike the Jedi, where you have to audition, you know, and be the right kind of chaste person who doesn't like negative emotions, spot the irony, is accepted, right? And so I think the idea is that we can imagine groups differently. We don't have to imagine groups as bunches of things that get rid of their parts, right? I'm going to say parts rather than individual, because individual, in a way, is a fascist community of parts of an individual. It's the same problem as a group of individuals all bound together like sticks, is a group of me bound together and calling myself, oh, I'm a human, as opposed to, I use the word non-human, but it's not actually a bad word because it suggests this boundary and this kind of binary, which isn't correct, right? I overlap with so many other life forms and like there's little crustaceans in my eyelashes and there's little bacteria in my stomach and some of these bacteria actually in the air. And so there's these overlaps all the time. So how do we get groups that can overlap and that can include I'm hugely into intersectionality and I'm trying to figure out the ontology of intersectionality and the what we call the myriology of it. In other words, the parts-whole relationships, right? Now, there's a thing in white Western logic, the law of non-contradiction, and there's no good reason for it. It's self-justifying. You can't prove it without using it. And it's from section gamma of Aristotle's metaphysics, and it doesn't really work. And logic is just like folding the laundry, yeah? Whereas maths is like wearing clothes. You can wear clothes without needing to fold the laundry, but it's very hard to fold the laundry in such a way that will convince people that your clothes are great. And this is the project that logic tries to set itself all the time. And so I'm on the side of the math rather than the logic, yeah? And so I'm thinking, there are these, how do we allow for loose collections of things, like collective in that sense? How do we allow for what pejoratively you might call heaps or piles of things that can overlap? Because I'm a pile of things that can overlap with other piles of things. And an ecosystem or a habitat is a pile or heap of things, you know, that can overlap, right? You've got a meadow with a stream, but the stream goes out of the meadow into something else, right? A, a bird flies in and then the bird flies out, right? If you don't think heaps can exist because they're too vague, which is what the vanilla patriarchal logic says, then you can't justify protecting habitats, because you don't think heaps really exist. Here's a, like a thought experiment. So imagine a little meadow, all these little voli creatures running around. You've got some trees and some grass. And you take a blade of grass out of the meadow. You say, is this still a meadow? Yes. Another blade of grass, still a meadow? Yes. Another blade of grass, still a meadow? 
Yes, 10,000 blades of grass later, you can still say yes. Now it's just a desert with like a tree and a, like a stream isn't so great anymore. Like, you know what? This really wasn't a meadow in the first place. The meadows don't really exist. Oh, so this is an ideal place for a parking lot because there's no such thing as meadows, right? So this is the problem, right? Unless we think of things as sparklingly and beautifully discreet, which is not the same thing as saying they're individual, and that they can overlap with other things that are also sparklingly discreet, right? Then we can't be nice to things like meadows, which is also, I'm a meadow of other life forms, right? And this conversation is a meadow of like, here I am in Houston, and here you guys are in different places, right? And we're in this kind of meadow now, we're doing this chat, right? And so how to imagine groups that can overlap? The other thing about it is that Planet-scale ecological action does not swallow, like Pac-Man, all the other things you can do. So I'm turning my back garden into an experimental farm with the help of my friends Laura and Paolo, who are doing this urban farming stuff. And that's what I can do in my back garden. And that's the world I can create there. And my arm span is like six foot. That's what I can do with my arm span scale. And doing planet scale stuff doesn't cancel that out. And even if a giant wall of flame comes and engulfs it, I did the right thing anyway. There's a midrash of the Quran that's really helpful with this. It says basically, look, there's a giant wall of flame coming towards you. Don't look at that. That's too much. Look instead in your hand. You notice in your hand you have a seed. Plant the seed in good soil, it says. And one or two things will happen. Either the wall of flame engulfs you, but you did the right thing anyway, or... God calls it off, right? Either way, it's kind of working, yeah? And so this idea that like the whole digests all the parts into nothing is based on a narcissistic idea that you take in the world and you digest it and it turns into you, which is the kind of alien, Ripley, alien approach to life, which is why Donald Trump's fascism is eating the world. And so how to create a kind of holism that doesn't do that? Because you need to be a holist. You need not to be with Mrs. Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society. You have to believe in holes. But what kind of holism is the interesting question? So interesting to think about. And as you were talking, I was thinking about all different applications of your meta analogy in real life. And when you speak about intersectionality, I think about how in conversations I have with real people, there are certain types of acceptable intersections and certain things that are not acceptable or glamorous and that are harder to talk about. So I love the real world application of everything you talk about. I'm so sorry. May I say something to that? It's really important. Of course. Um, So I'm always, as a scholar, lots of scholars are interested in distinguishing themselves from other scholars, right? But I'm more interested in overlaps, right? How do I overlap? And I'm always trying to see the good in things and the good in people, right? And like, maybe you only need to overlap with this other person 10% to be nice to them. Maybe you don't need to go the whole way. Maybe even just like, I identify with my cat's world, my cat in quotation marks. Oliver's world is maybe 10% of mine because he's like an, an almost an alien life form this world is like 60 degrees to mine and that's lovely right like we intersect in a certain way but then the bits where we don't intersect is also great because you can appreciate this otherness you know and so maybe like we only need to overlap with other humans and other life forms a little bit you know to make a better world that's actually a very lovely thing to think like we don't have to like reinvent the wheel to do this we just have to realize how we overlap with people i think true and, and so interesting to think about 
I wonder how Oliver feels about how your worlds overlap. Oliver loves that right now because I've sort of done a lot of processing of myself vis-a-vis Oliver, right? Like Oliver's a cat, so Oliver's only got one or two sound levers to pull. And the lever that he pulls, because he's a tuxedo cat, is... And it sounds very like a plaintive sound. And he's figured out that the most important word that humans say is hello... So when he really wants something, he goes, hello, and it's, oh my, don't be that non-human philosopher, but like, actually, could you not speak English now? Because it's a bit, and for a while, I was, he was making this noise, like he's training me, I felt, to feed him. He's making this irritating noise until I feed him, and he makes a reward sound. This is the dopamine, you know, and I wonder whether if there is a God, God is going, stop making that noise, which humans call praying. You're like, stop making the noise, I'm doing it. I was already doing it before you made the noise. Stop it with the noise, you know. And so there's a little bit of that, but then I may, I'd retrain myself to hear the noises, I love you. Just because me as a human being thinks that means complaining, it isn't. And since I figured that out, Oliver's really loving on me because he's figured out that I figured out, you know. And the other cool thing about Oliver is Oliver can feel my heartbeat because he's got those whiskers with the electromagnetic detection. And he can tell from the way I'm walking and stuff. So now that I'm really injured and I can hardly walk and I can't lift up more than a, a pint glass of water without feeling in pain, you know. So he knows that. So he'll come up to me and go, wow, wow. And what it means is I love you and I care about you and what can I do to help you? And when I'm talking on the phone or like this, bless you, Oliver, you're not doing it anymore because I tell him and he actually listens and he stops it because I tell him like, come inside, Oliver, and he does it, which is really odd. But when I'm talking on the phone, he doesn't realize that I'm talking to someone. He thinks, why is this person talking not to me? I'm the helper. Why are they doing that? Do you need help? What's going on? Are you crying? Can I help you? So he'll come up and vocalize really loudly. And he's not trying to interrupt. He's trying to help because what's happened to Tim, they've gone insane, right? And, and so now I'm like, Oliver, I'm just talking with someone. I might sound upset, but I'm not really upset. And it's okay. And you know what? This is last couple of weeks. He actually listens and he goes away and falls asleep, which is completely different behavior because I get him in a way that I didn't get him before. And I love this about especially cats because they're not designed like full respect to dog people. And I love dogs too, but dogs have learned to narcissistically mirror the human being, right? Whereas cats don't. So cats they get into do this what problem. They want, I, yes. Ironically, cats are accused of being narcissists, but they're not because they're not trying to reflect. They're just being oblique to humans, yeah? And that's what's interesting about cats. Like how to relate to cats is how to relate to the alien aspect of yourself, let alone the alien aspect of, of other, of other life forms, you know? And so since I figured this out about Oliver, you said lovely question because I was talking about this with some people this week. He's actually really calmed down, you know, and he's become so loving and funny because, oh my God, you get me. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm going to pivot ever so slightly to a different question, if that's all right. Regarding the cover of Spacecraft, how did you envision the look of hyperspace for the cover? I'm a huge, big fan of movement, right? Like some philosophy people, I'm called a philosopher, which is, should be an insult, and it is. And what it really means is clown, right? Like a philosopher stands next to a real person doing something real and sort of imitates them a bit until one or two of their heads explode and something happens interesting. But mostly it's just a form of clown, yeah? But basically, lots of philosophy, especially white Western philosophy, is, has a big problem with movement. 
things are like ping pong balls and then they move. Whereas I'm thinking quantum theory is saying everything is a wave. Everything's just vibrating all by itself without being pushed, right? And so I think movement is part of things, right? Like how things are different from themselves fundamentally is the form of a wave. Like where is the wave? It's kind of, it's everywhere. Is it on the trough? Is it on the peak? Is it on the bit in between? It's kind of like non-local, even just a regular old ocean wave. And so I wanted to convey the wave-like quality of hyperspace. In other words, not just a tunnel, but a feeling of moving, right? The crucial thing about the hyperspace tunnel is that it's moving, you know, and the when you go to hyperspace, there's this Bridget Riley for the masses moment where there's this fourth wall collapse and everyone gets to see Bridget Riley painting for a minute. And then you're in this Zoom feeling, right? So me and the artist talk quite a lot about how can we angle the ship so that it feels like it's actually moving or is about to move. And that actually what's really happening is the ship isn't penetrating the hyperspace. The hyperspace is, there's a word in feminist sexuality studies called seclude. It's secluding the falcon, actually, is what's happening. The space is moving. Here's a Star Trek quotation of Scotty in the reboot. I never realized that space was a thing that was moving, which is a great thing to say, Right. And it's like actually space is moving and I'm inviting space to move rather than I'm colonially penetrating space. Yeah. And so that was very important to me to get the feeling that the hyperspace wasn't going to be penetrated by the Falcon, but that the hyperspace was going to envelop the Falcon and that it was starting to do it. And that's why we did the sort of different angles there to give you like it was like a five point plus perspective so that it's got this feeling of moving. Yeah, I really loved the cover. It's really fun. That is something that I was thinking about because earlier I think you were talking about hyperspace being from the perspective of like the ship in Star Wars, but also to some extent Star Trek and definitely from the perspective of the TARDIS and Doctor Who of being like a tunnel that is moving. And we can go to our last question here for fun, which is besides the Millennium Falcon, which I'm assuming is your favourite spacecraft, what is your favourite spacecraft? Mine would probably be TARDIS because DS9 and Babylon 5 are technically space stations. Okay, so I'm going to just come out here as a super fan of Doctor Who, much, much more than Star Wars, okay? I didn't write the book about TARDIS, but actually the TARDIS, wow, there's an episode of the reboot where the TARDIS gets reincarnated as a person. Yes, it's one of the most... Episode. There you go. And it's one of the most moving things I've ever seen. And what Idris says is she's just kind of figuring stuff out. And she says, are people always like this? And the doctor's like, what? And she goes, bigger on the inside. I just lose it. You know, I watch those episodes all day, every day. I say to people, I don't really look at art. I just watch Doctor Who, which is true. Because like there was a certain point when I was going through beginning to realize I had PTSD. And all I could do was watch like children's sci-fi and the point about Doctor Who is, like, it's horror sci-fi for kids with a sense of the ridiculous and a sense of playfulness and a pencil and a sonic screwdriver and this amazing deus ex machina thing. The Doctor can solve a lot of problems. And, like, the interesting premise of that show is, what if the deus ex machina, who is banned by Aristotle, who comes out to sort out everything like the headmistress at the end of the play, what if they were the lead character and were an actual person with problems and feelings and stuff like that. And one of the things I love actually about the credits for the Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who 
is that time has become this liquid. It's very obviously this time liquid with many, many different entry and exit ports. Like Irigaray wrote the software for the hyperspace tunnel in the Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who. And I can't wait for the new one, right, where there's been this ad that has just like, I cry. I watch it all the time. I watch it over and over and over again. I'm a huge repetition freak. And then the deus ex machina of the black person and Chuti Gatwa comes and like goes, what, can someone tell me what the hell is going on here? Is like interrupts the thing of the thing. I've got all these theories about what's that all about, you know. And then I watched every single David Tennant episode to sort of figure out what's going on here. I can quote it just like verbatim. And that's really, I'm a huge, what did they say, Whovian? Um, it's Whovian, yeah. Yeah. And I, so basically and I, it would be the TARDIS. Be, yes, in, in short, it's the TARDIS. Rachel, favourite spaceship? It can be a or spacecraft, could be a real one. <laughs> We've talked about this and because you helped me prepare my answer and I forget the name of what I... It's the rocket. The rocket, the Apollo 11 rocket, which I think... Okay, so the Saturn V. Yes. Come to Houston because you can see Saturn V. You can go in there and see it and you can do the Stuart Copeland walking on the moon, drumming on it before security comes and arrests you. And that's an amazing, my mum, I saw the moon landing with my mum and my mum wrote to NASA before they did merge and said, my child is really fascinated by Saturn V. And they sent me all these photos of the moon, you know, and Saturn V. And then I got a little model of Saturn V. So you're talking to the right person here. Yes. And, you know, as we know from the impossible astronaut, blah, 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 blah. If you're a Doctor Who fan, Saturn V is an incredibly important thing. I say it's all connected. Fantastic. And I think that is a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Tim, for this conversation. Oh, gosh, it's been such a delight. And I'm so honoured to be working with Bloomsbury on my things. And you could not have done a better job with both of those things. And we didn't talk about it, but the cover of The Stuff of Life is outrageous. There's little kind of colour things on the spine of all the little objects in it. It's just wow. You know, so I'm very grateful to you guys. And also just on a personal level for upgrading me to the point. Now I sound like a Cyberman accidentally upgrading me to the point where I can actually confront some of the really dark parts of my childhood and actually write about them in this book that I'm writing right now. And that's thanks to you guys helping me feel it with these two books, really seriously. I'm glad to hear. Thank you so much. Timothy Walton, author of Object Lessons book, Spacecraft and The Stuff of Life. 